like to me, sanctuary is almost a naughty word. I don't, I don't <laughs> like hearing it um, for the most part because I know typically what's going to come out of their mouth. They never go in there. And in my head, it's like, okay, you, you paid all this money and you invested in this property and you want it to be as beneficial for deer and wildlife as possible. But you're treating half the property as if somebody else owns it. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and this week we'll be talking with Zach Vakurovich of Whetstone Habitat about creating and maintaining sanctuaries and how deer hunters and land managers often miss out on the full advantages of sanctuaries because they're not managing them correctly. So I know I learned a lot talking with Zach that I can put into practice here on my small property And I know you guys are going to learn a lot as well. So be sure to stick around for that. Before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Whitetail Properties. If you have a dream of owning your own hunting land or you're in the process of looking for your first hunting property, be sure to check them out at whitetailproperties.com. They're the only land real estate company out there that requires their agents to become level two NDA deer stewards. So you know you're going to be dealing with someone who knows what to look for in a property for deer hunting and deer management. And one final thing, guys, if you're listening to this on the day that it launches, so that's Wednesday, May 11th, 2022, it's our first ever NDA day of giving. And we would love to have your support today. Of course, as a 501c3 nonprofit, the NDA relies on memberships and donations from folks folks like yourself, along with our corporate partners, And uh, so this is going to be an important day for us. And uh, incredibly, we've already had somebody step up and agree to match all donations made today, May 11th, dollar for dollar, up to $50,000. So we uh, we are extremely excited about our, our giving day. We hope you'll consider making a donation today to help us ensure the future of wild deer, wildlife habitat, and hunting. Uh, all you got to do is head over to DeerAssociation.com slash NDA fund, or just go to DeerAssociation.com and click on the Giving Day banner right there at the top of our homepage. And with that, guys, let's jump on the phone with Zach Vakirovich to talk about sanctuary areas and how to manage them properly. Zach, b- before we dive into you know some deer habitat and, and talk about sanctuaries, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Zach Vakurvich. Uh I'm the founder and owner of Whetstone Habitat. Uh, I work with landowners to develop and implement some management practices across their their properties that are more sustainable, better for the better for the native uh, wildlife and plant communities. And especially, I have an emphasis on managing people's deer herds. And it's it, it's great get to work hand in hand with landowners and kind of take a property, whether they're a first time property owner, or it's a property that's been in their family for for generations, um, just kind of giving them some guidance and a fresh set of eyes on, on their little chunk of heaven and figuring out how we can't turn it into a, a more productive deer hunt place. Yeah. And how long have you been doing that professionally? Uh, going on three years now, I started doing it kind of as a hobby. Um, I graduated from West Virginia university with a degree in wildlife and fisheries management. I kind of hopped around the country doing the typical, wildlife biologists working for seasonal jobs for state agencies or for the forest service, this, that, and the other. And, uh, about three years ago, I, I started, uh, what's known habitat and just kind of dove in head first. And yeah, it, it's been great. I, I just, I love my clients. I love what I do still get to be outside. I, uh, I think back at working for the forest service and, and, uh, for like West Virginia DNR, or even working on a, um, on a ranch down in Texas. And I, I look at my supervisors at every single one of those roles and they're all sitting behind the desk. <laughs> when I <laughs> yeah. sat back and thought about my career path, it was like, I didn't, I didn't really want that in my future. You know, I didn't get into wildlife management to sit behind a desk all day. So kind of started doing my own thing and, uh, it's just been great. I feel so fortunate. Well, good deal. Yep. As a fellow, uh, wildlife biology graduate myself and I've, I feel the pain of, uh, you know, finding those jobs right out of college and, and having to do seasonal work and, 
and definitely, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. That that's always one of the big uh, the big downsides to wildlife work is is the further, like you mentioned, the further you move up the chain, um, the further removed you are from the reason that you got involved to start with. You know, exactly you sitting behind a desk and making policy decisions, which you know that that's important stuff. But uh, most of us got into that because we like being outside and and in the field and and working with wildlife and hunters and that kind of stuff yeah that's uh that seems like the typical career path for most biologists (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah now you've written a couple articles for us uh for the nda and one of those was about uh deer sanctuary areas and and how a lot of folks are are managing those incorrectly and that's that's kind of going to be our main focus of discussion today but before we go there, uh, you also wrote a, a pretty interesting article for us a while back about uh, o- online dating, of all things, on, on uh, the NDA website. But it was really about just kind of the talking to non-hunters and the, and the feedback that you got from people, you know, when they found out that you were a wildlife biologist and a, and a hunter. So can you kind of tell us a little bit about what, what prompted you to write that article and just how that all came about? Yeah, absolutely. It was it was actually kind of funny. I was uh, I was working on a different article uh, just for my own website um, to to post a blog posting on there, and I reached out to Lindsay Thomas because you guys had a really awesome graphic kind of detailing exactly what my article was about. So I reached out for some permission and started talking to Lindsay. I I'd talked to him before, but I. Uh, you brought up the the idea of writing for you guys. And uh, I was like, well, I got this one idea that I've been kind of sitting on for a while. <laughs> and I sort of explained it to him. And I was like, I don't really know if I want to get into how I collected my uh, observational data. <laughs> and he goes, no, that's exactly it. When I told him it was through online dating and the pandemic, he says, there's your hook right there. <laughs> that's, that's great. So that was kind of, yeah, that was my first article I wrote for you guys. And the, the, just to the article, it was one of those things where COVID started, everyone was kind of locked up and I was kind of relegated to the online dating scene, being a late 20s single single guy. And one of the things I kept running into was in my profile, you got to put your occupation. And so my occupation, wildlife biologist, it, it sparked a lot of interest from all walks of life. You know, I went on, went on dates with physicians or bartenders or yoga instructor, you name it. And it would always, the conversation would always go the same way. They'd start asking about my job and I'd start telling them, yeah, I, I do habitat work for, for private landowners. And um, when they start asking about my client base, I'm like, it's almost exclusively deer hunters that are hiring me to come out. And it kind of takes them back because it, it never crosses their mind that a, a, a hunter is out there doing conservation work. They're just not exposed to it. And when I tell them that I hunt, it kind of immediately puts their head into a pretzel. You know, <laughs> what, what do you mean you love deer, but you can go out there and, and shoot one. Um, and so I kind of got a lot of feedback, uh, through those, those online chats, kind of talking, with, like I said, people from all different walks of life. And I was able to try out a bunch of different methods as far as like, what is, what is the best received message I can provide as a hunter to this non-hunter? And I found out a couple of things. The first thing is, is most people aren't anti-hunting. They're just non-hunters, um, which is a big distinction to make. I think a lot of us outdoors oh, yeah. kind of don't make that distinction. We just assume if you're not a hunter, you're against it. Um, but overwhelmingly, most people that don't hunt, they're, they're just not aware of it. And then a couple other findings I had was most, most of them aren't aware that we eat the meat, you know, trophy hunting's a big, big hot term. It's kind of died down a little bit, but for a while there, that was all anyone was talking about with regards to hunters was trophy hunting. And I'm like, not only do I eat the meat, every other hunter you run into does matter of fact, it's illegal to not harvest the meat off of a deer that you take. And that kind of opens their eyes. Oh, you mean like it's regulated and they just, they just had no idea. They think you walk out, shoot a deer, take a picture of it and (laughs) post it on your Instagram and that's it. Um, so that was interesting, but they, they felt, uh, they really followed along with that. But then the other one that they're always like, well, I understand we need to keep their populations under control. That was, that was another big one that I was surprised held so much weight 
with the non-hunting community. Like that was immediately one that they always turned to. And to me, that was just always kind of a cop-out. I hate bringing that up. It, it's, it makes it sound like what we're doing is a chore. Like we have to do it. Right, right. Um, yeah. which, which just isn't the case. So yeah, I learned a lot of interesting lessons. And uh, that, that article is up on your guys' website. I, I recommend anyone go read it. It's kind of a fun article. And I just, I, I feel like it, opens your eyes, just educating yourself, going into the conversation, being aware of, you don't have to be an expert on Pittman Robertson Act to be able to have the conversation that, that hunting is conservation. I know a lot of people throw that out there, but they just don't truly understand what that means. So just arming yourself with, with some, some facts, like talking about, like, I love gifting people jerky I make that that's a big one that really resonates with people is being able to provide for others with, with your bounty and, um, yeah, it was, it was a fun one. And, and I recommend uh, you check it out if you're kind of struggling with having those conversations. You just got to keep in mind it's not a competition. You're not trying to win an argument. Um, so just being open minded to the feedback you get. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great article and it, it you can find it on our website. Just hit that that search bar and search for it's uh, called What I Learned from Talking to Non-Hunters. So uh, you should be able to should be able to find that pretty easy. And yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head there. Most people, I mean, surveys show that that like 80 percent of people support hunting, which, you know, is surprising, really. But in that the the uh, the catch to that is, though, when when it's done for food. So, you know, like you mentioned there, you, when you mentioned that that you're eating it and you're you're hunting for food, most people support that. Uh, you start throwing around the word trophy hunting and that support goes way, way down. Um, so, yeah, it's all about just how you talk to people. And and really, I guess that's it's kind of a um, points to a, a failure on our part as, as hunters as a whole. And uh, we haven't done a very good job, I guess, of getting that message out there of, of why we do what we do. And, uh, well, it, it's also interesting because I, I can talk all day about how much I enjoy, you know, whenever I get to go home and, and make jerky and share it or, or cook a meal, cook the back straps, grill up some, some venison burgers. Um, but then they always, it's like, well, why do you, why do you keep the head? Why do you keep the antlers, you know? And it, it puts you kind of into a little bit of a pickle there. And it's one of those things where like, yeah, I have an immediate memory every time I'm, I open up a package of venison out of the freezer and start cooking it. Yeah, I remember the hunt where that deer came from. And it's the same thing, I think, with, with having a deer head on the wall or doing a European mount or, I mean, uh, just having sheds everywhere. Like a lot of people don't yeah. walk into oh, my yeah. house and they see antlers laying around. They assume I killed every single one of those deer. <laughs> like, oh, let me tell you a little something about deer biology. You might blow your mind. So, yep, absolutely. I'm curious, what were some of the more, I guess, common misconceptions that you would run into about your job? I mean, what did they coming in? What did most of these folks think you were actually doing? <laughs> so most of them thought I was I was going out there and working to some capacity on like sustainability, which I which I am. But they thought like a farmer would hire me in and help them uh, do like a more sustainable crop rotation, which is a lot of what I do. Um, or they thought I was working with like people in neighborhoods and like planting pollinator gardens, which which I would recommend for any landowner. <laughs> but um, planting natives, they, they all just kind of assumed it had something to do. Once I brought up the term habitat, they immediately think of uh, neighborhoods where people are and wildlife kind of have those interactions in very small chunks of land. And when I start telling them I'm, I'm working mostly with, with larger tracts of land, larger anywhere from 20 to 1100 acres, you know, there's, there's a lot of variables there, but they just, uh, yeah, they don't know. <laughs> they, uh, they assume that it's, it's going the route that, uh, I'm making funny to put it this way, but a sanctuary for wildlife. And <laughs> when right, I tell right. them it's actually, uh, it's for the benefit of the hunters. Um, it, it just kind of confuses them half the time. So I got some explaining to do most of the time. <laughs> well, I got to ask, did it, did, uh, did any of them upon finding out specifically what you were doing, did, did the date come to a screeching halt? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, um, it wasn't, it wasn't too common, but a lot of the times, yeah, that, that would be the case. And like one of the other, one of the other girls I had talked to, she brought up a good point when we were talking about fishing <laughs> and it was actually something I'd never 
never even thought about before, but uh, she was totally okay with me hunting because she understood that I was going out and, you know, I was eating it and I was sharing some of that, that venison. But when I brought up the fact that I really enjoy bass fishing and going out there, she's like, oh yeah, uh, what's your favorite thing to cook with them? And I was explaining, I always let them go. And <laughs> she goes, wait, so you just like driving a metal hook through their mouth and then letting them go. <laughs> well, when you put it that way, uh, yeah, <laughs> but I'd never thought of it like that. So. Yeah. That, that's interesting. She got upset because you're not killing the fish. Exactly. So. <laughs> that was, yeah. That was different for sure. But yeah, I, I uh, uh, again, having gone through the whole getting a wildlife degree, uh, back when I was going through school, it, it was funny I, there was pretty much two reactions when I told somebody, you know, I was I was getting a degree in wildlife biology. Game warden. Uh, yeah, they either thought you were <laughs> going to be a game warden or a park ranger. That was yeah. like the two the two things that immediately came to people's mind. So yeah, it's uh, that we just uh, I guess as wildlife biologists we hadn't done a good job of getting the message out either of, of what that entails. That um, so well, yeah, I think most people have this conception that wildlife is there despite us. You know, like wildlife's just barely hanging on. They have no idea how much work actually goes into making sure we have these sustainable populations out there, whether it be like game species or non-game species. It's just, they think wildlife's just there um, despite our presence rather than because we want it there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, most have no idea that that it's, you know, hunters in bulk paying for that, that work. And like you said, all the work that's actually going on behind the scenes. Uh, to make sure we do all have wildlife pictures. populations. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's all right. Those, all those biologists sitting behind the desk, that's what they're doing. <laughs> Absolutely. But hey, uh, we'll, we'll move on from the, the online dating scene and uh, shift gears now and talk uh, really what we what I wanted to get you on the, the show for, and that's to talk some deer habitat and more specifically the, the idea of deer sanctuaries on a hunting property. And so I guess the best way to, to kind of start the conversation is to just break down or, or tell us exactly, you know, what, what is a, a sanctuary uh, for the purpose of our discussion here today? And what, you know, what, what purpose do they serve as far as for deer? Yeah, I, I think sanctuaries are often misinterpreted or, or I think the landowners kind of misinformed. They're always, they always mean well. Um, every single, almost every single client I have uh, asked me about them. And it's, it's one of those things where sanctuaries to the, to most property owners are somewhere completely off limits. You know, it's a, it's a chunkier property that you're setting aside for the deer as an, an escape a safe haven for them to get to, which is great. And, and it definitely serves a purpose to look at it in, in that light. But I think they're missing the bigger picture um, as far as providing a good, good safe haven for them, you know, a place that a deer would want to go. That's not going to be stressing that animal out for, for the longest time. And I'm still running into it when I talk with a, a landowner, it brings up, Oh yeah, over there's my sanctuary. Um, and I started asking about, well, what do you mean? What do you mean by your sanctuary? When, when's, when's the last time you went in there? Um, like to me, sanctuary is almost a naughty word. I don't, I don't like hearing it, um, for the most part, because I know typically what's going to come out of their mouth. They never go in there, you know, unless they're blood trailing a deer that was wounded, it's completely off limits to the property owner. And in my head, it's like, okay, you, you paid all this money and you invested in this property and you want it to be as beneficial for deer and wildlife as possible, but you're treating half the property as if somebody else owns it. And it's always just kind of boggled my mind um, that, that it's just that off limits. So to me, I, I, the whole article is about me trying to, trying to nudge landowners in the direction where you should be actively managing those sanctuaries like you're doing with the rest of your property. You, you want to make sure that there is something there for the deer that, that is going to benefit them more so than just a place where a human's not going to walk up on them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I guess along the way somewhere, I guess it's, it stems from, I don't know if people have this, this misconception, I guess that, you know, even during the off season, if, if they get in there and bump deer, that the deer are just going to, you know, completely abandon their property and mm-hmm. stay over with the neighbors or, or what it is about it. But yeah, there certainly seems to be a misconception there that, yeah, you just, 
have to mark these areas off and and never enter them again. You know? <laughs> yeah, so. and, and to me, it's it's one of those. I I just I always think that there's something you can be doing to improve a property um, in every every part of that property. And when you say a place is completely off limits all year long, I mean, a majority of the, like the Midwest, I work a lot in the Midwest and mid Atlantic, and you look at a lot of the landscape and it's, it's getting choked up with, with red cedar or bush honeysuckle is a terrible one, especially on all my Ohio clients and Kentucky clients, like bush honeysuckle, um, all these non-native plants, autumn olive, they're all creeping in there. And a lot of times that's the thickest cover around and the landowner doesn't want to tackle that project. So boom, it's a sanctuary. And when you really look at it, there's not, yeah, there's some pretty good cover in there, but as far as good wildlife habitat goes, I mean, they're not, they don't go out of their way to eat bush honeysuckle. Will they eat it? Yeah, but it's not a preferred food source. Um, there's plenty of native alternatives. If you took the time to go in there and clean it out, um, you can really promote some awesome deer habitat on that chunk of ground. It's just a matter of a little sweat equity and uh, getting over the misconception that you've got to stay out 365 days a year. <laughs> well, let's uh, b- before we, I guess, dive into the the mismanagement side of it, what people are doing wrong. Uh, let, let's kind of get into some of the basics, I guess, of of creating one and, and what to do right. Um, and uh, I guess first off, does every hunting property need a sanctuary area? I mean, do you recommend a sanctuary for? every landowner, you know, that you, uh, you work with? Uh, not every landowner. A lot of it has to do with, uh, how much acreage do you have? Can you afford, um, this space or what the shape of your property looks like? If you have like a really long and narrow property, um, and you just can't access parts of it. Yeah. I'm going to absolutely recommend maybe one end of it. You, you leave alone because you can't really deem a sanctuary if you plan on hunting the entire property. Um, but for the most part, I, I do. I I don't want to. I don't want it to sound like I'm, I'm anti, quote unquote, sanctuary for a property. Um, I just think that that the rules surrounding what defines your sanctuary kind of have to change. So, I I think on most properties, yes, I'm going to recommend some type of sanctuary type area where you can give those deer a break. Um, but I'll even recommend hunting sanctuary sometimes when conditions are right. You know. Like that, I think that's a a big difference. People kind of get taken back by that concept. You mean to go in there and hunt a sanctuary? Yeah. I mean, if you got a good bedding thicket cut in there, you got a good wind in your direction and you know what you're using it, you're allowed to, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, like the situation I'm in here, I just uh, bought my first piece of property a little over a year ago and it's only 15 acres. And so yeah, it'd be hard to it'd be hard to break off much of a chunk and say I'm never going to enter or you know I'm never going to hunt this part. But my my goal, I guess, is you know I do want a one section of it that's in hardwoods now. Um, I'm I'm thinning back the hardwoods heavily because it's right now it's a closed canopy, you know, nothing growing underneath. So I'm I'm cutting that way back. I'm really trying to thicken up that understory. And you know, as I kind of get it where I want it, I guess my thought is, you know, I, absolutely I'm going to hunt it, but it's going to be very limited and, you know, picking and choosing those times when, when all the conditions are right. Um, you know, maybe I'm getting some good trail camera, um, you know, information that's showing, you know, they're, they're using it or during daylight hours and then, you know, trying to hunt the, the, uh, the fringes of it for the most part, I guess. So, you know, there's no way I can really block off a, a section and say, I'm never going in there when, when you only have 15 acres to start with, but, uh, you can certainly hunt it wisely. What you know, the, what you do have, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times, those smaller acreages. I mean, I would what you just described in, in my, by my definition, I would absolutely call a sanctuary. Um, and those smaller tracts of land, yeah, most of your property is probably going to be like that. You're not going to be going on a Sunday afternoon hike around the perimeter of the property <laughs> when you only have that much room. So again, it's just redefining what you're, what you're going to call that sanctuary. Um, but yeah, the, those smaller acreages, it, it makes so much sense to have an area that, that you are really hands off during the hunting season, but pick and choose that can be absolute dynamite spot because those deer are feeling safe there and catch them in their bedroom. Yeah, absolutely. So how large of an area does this, does this need to be? And, and I know it's obviously it's going to vary some by the size of your property, but is, is more better or, 
you know, is there a limit to, to how large you should make these areas? So, um, it, yeah, you're right. It, it is absolutely situational. Um, I don't want to deem anything sanctuary that's going to be detrimental to a property owner being able to enjoy his property. Like I was saying, you, you purchase that to be your little slice of heaven somewhere you go and you get to hunt and you, you have results. So depending on how that, that property lays out, it, it might be something where you might have an entire hillside that you're going to deem a sanctuary or maybe some areas on, on the perimeter that are kind of tough to get to anyways. Um, a lot of times the areas I suggest for stuff like this are areas that just aren't very huntable. Um, so it, it, it really depends. And it's one of those things where if, if you're a new property owner and you're still figuring out that property, maybe you don't deem a sanctuary until you have a couple seasons of hunting under your belt and you really kind of figure out, okay, the winds always swirl here. Can't do that. Okay. They, they really like using that swamp. I'm going to stay out. Um, and really kind of figuring out where those deer like to move and then, and then putting those sanctuaries where, where they're going to benefit you as a hunter. Um, I think that's most important. So I'm not going to say, oh, I think 25% of your property should be should be in a sanctuary. But where, wherever it makes sense, where you can set something aside that's not going to hinder your ability to enjoy and hunt the rest of your property, I, I think you need to consider putting one in there. Yeah. Any other factors in, in choosing a location? I know, you know, you mentioned there, obviously, if it's an area that's just hard to hunt, um, that, that that's a pretty good start. But uh, anything else that you're kind of looking for as a potential area to, to deem a sanctuary? Yeah. So I like choosing areas that are going to be beneficial during, during harsher periods of time and during, during the hunting season. So you're looking at those South facing hillsides. You want to make sure you have, you have at least an area that they're going to want to go to that again, for the whole point of a sanctuary is to minimize stress on those animals. People would be shocked at how important stress is when, when you're trying to grow trophy deer. Um, so you want to think about the calendar and what, what parts of the year are really kind of stressful for those deer. So during, during hunting season, during the winter, you're going to want to focus on those South face and hillsides. Um, make sure you have something like that in, in the, some form of sanctuary or during the summertime, people don't always think about thermal cover during the summertime when it's really hot. Maybe you got an area with a ton of sumac thickets or, um, you got a North facing slope. That's really just closed canopy woodlot. Um, consider going in there and doing some timber work and, and making that a sanctuary. It's not going to benefit you as a hunter, um, directly because those deer aren't going to be spending a whole lot of time in that area during the winter when, when it's freezing cold on that north side of the slope, but it, it's really going to minimize the stress during the off season. And so, yeah, that's going to mean breaking the rules, getting in there and doing a little timber stand work during after hunting season wraps up, but it's also going to benefit you on the back end as far as they're going to have a nice cool spot to go during, during those hot summer months where there is going to be some forage nearby. So when I'm looking for things to, to designate a sanctuary, it's, it's going to be make sure there's something there where you can create something that's going to be beneficial for your deer herd. Just deeming a, a cedar thicket a sanctuary because it's, it's good cover that's not going to cut it. You know, there's no food there for them. So making sure there's going to be something there that will benefit those deer. It might be a small seep that always has some water running in it. Um, it might be the cover aspect. If you have those cedars go in there, leave some of the cedar standing, but thin a bunch of them out and try to promote some other, some other more desirable plant species growing in that area. You want it to benefit the deer, um, in some form or the other. So if you have an area that, already has some good components to it. It's a matter of getting in there and managing it and kind of nudging mother nature in the right direction as far as how you're going to get a, a more complete species composition over there that you're looking for. Yeah. Okay. So once you've, you've decided on the location, you've, you've picked a spot out and, and you touched on some of this stuff just right then, you know, thinning out cedars or, or whatever the case may be. But, um, how do you go about creating the sanctuary? I mean, obviously, like you says, it's not just simply walking away and staying out of it. Uh, what what can I be doing to improve that area or, or make it, uh, you know, more usable, I guess, as, as a sanctuary for deer? So one of the things you, you can do most of the work with a set of loppers and a chainsaw and a little squirt bottle of herbicide. I think 
people try to overcomplicate it where, oh, I need to, if I'm going to make a little opening, I need to rent a forestry mulcher and get in there and do some, some heavy lifting and get that place squared away as quickly as possible. But I mean, if you get some time throughout the summertime, go back there, running your chainsaw, doing, adding, um, I'll call it a bedding thicket. It's the same thing. If you're doing a program with NRCS, a temporary forest opening would be their term for it or a micro clear cut. Um, but just getting a, a nice bedding area in there for them where you know those deer are going to be. When you're talking about hunting a sanctuary, there's there's plenty of things you can do. I, I'd call it like a closed edge or some sort of barricade or blockade where you can lay some trees overs on the, on the skirts of those sanctuaries where you can create some funnels and pinch points for those deer entering and exiting the, the sanctuary. Um, so getting in there and, and running the chainsaw, and again, I, I always kind of joke that, yeah, I'm a wildlife biologist, but my main objective when I'm working with a property owner is managing plant communities. It, it, regardless, if I'm if I'm working on turkey or whitetail, or if somebody hired me to do something for songbirds, you know, I'm, I'm creating habitat through vegetation management practices that's going to create a more desirable landscape. So figuring out an, an objective an objective for those sanctuaries. And a lot of times, like I was saying, if it's that South Basin hillside and you want those deer, you know, they want to be in there and getting in there and, and doing some cutting with the chainsaw and, and knowing what species you should be treating with herbicide and what species you should be leaving alone um, to promote stump sprouts or suckers. Um, you want to increase a little bit of food value in there. You want to increase the structure and give them something to bet up against. So getting in there and, and running the chainsaw, if you're in an area where you're allowed to run a prescribed fire, um, it, it both people's minds if I recommend burning the sanctuary up. But when you really, when you sit down and think about it, well, you know, a year, two years down the road, that's, that's going to be a way better sanctuary than it ever was before uh, pre-fire. Um, you're just really, you're, you're trying to offer something that's going to benefit the deer. Um, and again, those cedar thickets are the perfect examples. Yeah. You might see a deer coming out of there or up North. I was just on a property in, uh, Northern Pennsylvania and there's a lot of, a lot of hemlock growing up there and you'll see deer coming through those hemlocks. And if, if you're just sitting on the field edge downhill from those, that hemlock stand and you see those deer coming out of there, you might think that they're spending a lot of time in those hemlocks. But when you get back there and you start walking around and following the tracks, you find out, no, they're betting on the next ridge over. They're just walking through it. So that might be where you think, oh, that that must be a sanctuary. The, the deer like spending time in there. They're not spending any time in there. They're just walking right through it because there's nothing there for them. So understanding uh, what those deer need and being able to provide a little bit of uh, both nutrition and, and uh, cover for them is, is always my goal as far as managing those sanctuaries. Now. Are you a proponent of of hinge cutting? That that seems to be that can be a hot topic, and and yeah. <laughs> you know, I talk to talk to folks who um, you know absolutely love it, and and you talk to others who you know just say no, that's that's a waste of time. What where do you fall in that spectrum? I guess uh, closer to the latter. I I do <laughs> hinge cut, and I recommend people doing it. But I mean, having talk to and work with a lot of foresters in the past, especially if it's an area that you plan on timbering down the road. Um, it just creates a nightmare and a hazard for those foresters and those loggers coming in to, to do cuts when you have all these trees laying parallel to the ground that are still alive and just trip hazards. And they're great um, in the sense that you get immediate cover on the ground and you get a couple years of them still butting out and leafing out. But if I'm going to go in, like, like when I'm telling someone how to do a, a, a micro clear cut or a bedding thicket, I'll recommend them doing any, any species. Like if you got some smaller maples and stuff in there, maybe 10 to 20% of them feel free to hinge them. But if you go in there and you hinge every single tree, uh, not only are you creating a hazard down the road for, for a logging crew, if they ever get in there, but it, it becomes harder to manage for you when you go in there because you got all those hinge cut trees in one area and then the rest of the forest starts starts growing up. And if you want to go in there and set that area back again, then you're the one that has to climb over all those hinge cut trees right. trying to, with a chainsaw in your hand. So I, I stay on the lower end. I, I never recommend doing exclusively hinge cuts unless I'm doing something like like I was talking about by creating a barricade or some sort of blockade to steer gear movement. That's probably the most common scenario I use a hinge cut for. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I think w what a lot of people don't 
don't think about is that, you know, if you're just hinge cutting these trees, you're really not, I guess if your goal is to get sunlight to the forest floor and, and stimulate understory growth, you're not really doing that. You know, these trees are no. still, leaf, they're, you're, they're still leafing out. They're still blocking sun from getting, getting to the forest floor. They're just, uh, they're you know, probably laying, blocking laying over now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. So yeah, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're actually doing, doing the opposite, but it can, like you mentioned there, provide some, some immediate cover. If, they, if that's the goal or, like you said, to route deer certain direction that you want them to go. So definitely, I guess, has you know, just another one of those things. It has its place, but it can also be uh, overutilized in some cases. Yep, it, it's another tool in the toolkit. And I was on a property the other week that went in and they showed me they did a, a big hinge cut area um, a couple of years prior before I got out there. And it, I mean, it, it looked good, but it was right off the main access trail. So you're creating this good bedding cover, but it's right off your trail. <laughs> and you kind of, it's one of those things where anytime you're going in and you're running a chainsaw and you're, you're doing a forest and improvement project, you just got to be cognizant of, of where you're doing those. So you're not shooting yourself in the foot and getting, <laughs> getting those deer used to bedding right where your main access trail is or, or whatever the case may be. So just, just taking a minute before you fire that saw up, Think twice before uh, you touch that first tree. Make sure it's the right area because it, it takes a long time for those hinge cuts to go away. <laughs> yeah, and, and I guess that's a good point that I hadn't really thought about. Even in in deciding where you're going to put these sanctuary areas, is it's not just a matter of staying out of them, but you also, I guess, have to think about how you're going to impact them just traveling to and from your stand. Um, you know, whether yeah. that be which way the wind's typically blowing or, like you said, whether you're walking right by these things and, and making noise and alerting the deer that you're in the area. So um, that would be another, I guess, consideration as you're you're planning out where these are going to go or at least once you have a plan on where they're going to go, how you're going to access around them. Yep, exactly. Now, you've already kind of hinted at this all, you know, as, as we've talked, but um, you know, like most habitat work, creating a sanctuary obviously isn't a, a one and done type project where you just go in and get it the way you want it and then, you know, walk away for, for the rest of the, the time you own the property. It's, uh, it's going to take some regular maintenance. Can, can you kind of touch on that? You know, what might be involved? How often are you going to go back into these things? And, and what are some of the things you're going to need to, I guess, kind of monitor and, and do? Yeah, that, that that M word monitoring those those sanctuaries is crucial. I mean, as soon as deer season's over, I don't care if it's the next day or if you want to wait until the deer start dropping their antlers. Um, I always like monitoring them. A great time, deer season wraps up and and you get a snowfall. Give it a couple of days and walk back there and, and follow their tracks and see how they've been utilizing it. I mean, that information is so crucial. If if you went in and you cut a little a little bedding thicket in a in a sanctuary. And it's been five, six, seven years and you go back there and all the trees are size of a baseball bat now and starting to shade each other out. And it's, it's not quite as thick as it used to be. Get, make plans for that spring, getting in there and, and doing some work. Um, I like looking, uh, for deer droppings in there. I mean, that'll tell you if they're spending a lot of time in there, if there's a lot of droppings around, cause that's really what you're looking for, right? You want those deer to get somewhere where they're safe and, um, truly utilizing that part of your property, especially if you have a smaller chunk of ground and you got a bunch of neighbors that, that shoot everything that walks, which is, it seems like every, everyone's got neighbors like that. Yeah, um, yeah, or at least they you, think they do. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Next door neighbor might be saying the same thing about you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you, you just gotta get in there and, and make sure they're utilizing it. I mean, if you did do a hinge cut and you get in there or you did some flush cuts and you're looking at those stump sprouts, or are they gnawing on, on those stump sprouts? Or are they browsing on that woody browse in the winter time? Like I said, are there, are there droppings around? Are you finding beds? Are you, are you finding sheds in your sanctuary? That's really kind of the, the key for me. If you've got a sanctuary that that's really holding deer and in particular, those more mature bucks, if you're finding their sheds in there, you're doing great. But if you're a couple years down the roads and, and you quit seeing that deer use, I think it's time you, you get in there, sharpen up the chainsaw, grab a, grab a bottle of herbicide and start doing some cutting in there and making it more desirable for them. So just monitoring, um, 
awesome to put trail cameras back there and that'd be a great time of year to get in there and pull those camera cards and just kind of see what what the deer use has been like and and you mentioned prescribed fire there too which we're you know we're big proponents of of utilizing prescribed fire uh, i think it's a, a a great habitat improvement tool or habitat management tool um how is that going to impact i guess the the use of the the sanctuary and how often would you would you want to do that so when you're burning an area like that i would i would say the idea would be to it, it's an easier way to kill off a, a lot of those woody uh trees and shrubs that are starting to encroach and starting to shade each other out you're, you're trying to kill that cambium layer and running a fire through there so monitoring that if you're four-year rotation you're probably in pretty good shape um up until then you're most likely just having some brambles and stump sprouts in there but um it, it's really just again you're you're setting back that secessional state whereas if you get in there with the chainsaw and you're you're, you're just cutting it and you're not following through with the burn um it's just going to come back into a woody composition whereas if you can get in there and you can burn it you kind of really set that secessional state back where you might get some more brambles and some more forbs and more food components in there as opposed to just those uh stumps shooting back up yeah now it, you you mentioned earlier about you know, hunting a sanctuary. And I know that that goes against the grain for a lot of folks. So what, what they like had in their mind <laughs> as, a, as a sanctuary, um, I guess, what advice would you give on that? I mean, what, as far as, you know, when are you going to hunt these? How, how often, what, what kind of precautions should you be taking? And um, just, just kind of lay that out for us. What, what, uh, what factors go into deciding if and when to hunt a sanctuary? So, like I said, I like doing a lot of uh, closed edge or, or barricades and making some some very uh, specific spots where those deer are entering and exiting those those sanctuaries. So, if you got a camera up there and you know your target is back there, um, using that area, put a camera on that on that pinch point or funnel you created. It, it's a matter of just waiting and waiting and waiting until you have the right wind conditions, until you have a morning when there's no frost on the ground, when you think you can get, you can get in there without crunching every single leaf in, in, in the county on your way in. Um, just being very specific. I, I would exclusively look at, at the wind and your temperatures for that time period. And if you're getting good movement, if you've had two mornings in a row where that buck's been coming in and out of there, you know, if you got a good wind direction, um, go for it. I, I don't know if I would be heading in there super early in the season. Um, it's one of those things where you do want it to be a, a safe spot for those deer. But if, if you're towards the end of the year and you know a deer's back there using that area, by all means, get in there and take advantage of it. Um, wind directions by far are the biggest factor. Um, and that's another thing you can do as far as the maintenance goes when you're back there and you're, you're touching it up or you're freshening up some of those stump sprouts and get more daylight on the ground. Think about your access in there, you know, maybe cut a little trail in there for you where you need to be able to get in there, do your stand, put your stand in there early. You know, a lot of people like to wait until the last minute before hunting season, the, the week before, and they're going to put their stands up. Well, maybe get in there and, and, put a hang on stand during the summer when you're back there working on those sanctuaries. It's just, um, getting all that stuff as far away from the time you're actually going to hunt it done as possible. You're, you're going to get the, you don't want to go in there and hang a stand unless you're doing like a climber or something where you can get in there and shoot up the tree, but just having a little forethought and, and watching those wind directions and temperatures. Is there a cutoff time, I guess, as far as going back to, preparing working in the sanctuary and like you were just talking about maybe going in and hanging stands i guess at what point as you approach the season would would do you recommend just you know at that point staying out of there until you're either you know going to hunt it or it's time to go back in and do maintenance work the next year i mean is there kind of a is there a certain period there so many you know a month out or two months out or what do you recommend I think a month out, you're, you're more than fine. That's kind of my rule of my prayer, my properties is a month out before season. We're, we're staying out of there. We're not going in there try to have everything done before then. Um, deer really, they, it, it's amazing. You think you go into an area and you're, you're running a chainsaw and you're, you're raising havoc out there and completely disturbing that area, which is the point of running the chainsaw. And you'd be surprised that you leave that area and, 
those deer will be in there that night munching on those those leaves yeah. that were 30 feet over their head and so it doesn't take long for a deer to get used to going back into those areas but one of the things i didn't really touch on earlier when i'm talking about that those maintenance steps of, of managing those sanctuaries it's just making sure you have a game plan in mind you know if you're going in there to treat honeysuckle make sure you got enough enough herbicide to, to finish your, your job for the day. Make sure you got your chainsaw with you, a settle offer. Make sure you have everything and get in there, do your work, get out. Don't don't turn what would be, say it's a project that's going to take eight hours. Um, yeah, I wouldn't recommend working on it an hour here, an hour next week, an hour next week. Try to try to be cognizant of, of how long you're spending in there and, and try to get as much done as you can as quickly as possible. You don't really want to be lingering around too much. Um, so really getting your ducks in a row and just knocking it out as, as quickly and safely as, as you can. Um, and just going to lend itself to, to more deer movement that, that disturbance you make doing eight hours in one day, as opposed to four, two hour days, I, I think will kind of, it, it won't affect those deer movement at nearly as much. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great tip. Is, is there a way to, I guess, to really tell if, if your sanctuary is serving its intended purpose? I mean, we've talked a little bit about monitoring, um, or at least monitoring the the habitat and, and when you need to come back in and freshen it up. But is how do you know if they're actually serving their intended purpose, I guess? Like I was talking about, if you're fortunate enough to be in an area where you get snowfall, um, getting in there a couple a day or two post snowfall and following those tracks, seeing those beds in there, um, looking for droppings on the ground. Uh, it's really just deer use. You want to make sure those deer are in there using it. Like I said, if it's an area you never go into, you can easily be fooled thinking the deer are spending a lot of time in there when really they're just passing through because it happens to be like on the way from where they're actually hanging out. So I, I think looking, looking for browse, um, looking for indications where they've been browsing on, on the woody stems in there, looking, looking for those droppings, looking for beds. You just, you want to get in there. Um, and the sooner post deer season, you can get in there, the better it's going to give you the most reliable information that's going to benefit you as a hunter. So if it's something where you can get in there the weekend after deer season's over, I mean, do it. Don't be, don't have all your hunting buddies in there with you. I mean, you want to be <laughs> quiet, keep scent control in mind, even though it's post season. Um, you're, you're that close to season. You, you want to get in there. Cause you got to remember those, those deer are still stressed out from the hunting season and the rut and the cold temperatures. So get in there walk around, kind of see, see what kind of movement you have going on in there. And if they're really not using that area and it's, it's been a couple of years where the pattern's the same, maybe, maybe it's time you just completely get rid of that sanctuary and, and try somewhere else. Um, don't, don't be glued to them thinking that it's a permanent thing. I mean, you're the one that deemed it a sanctuary. You can get rid of it, move it. <laughs> you can, you can do whatever you want with it. It's, it's right, not yeah. set in stone. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, if, if they're not, if it's not being utilized, then there's no point in, you know, keeping that designation and, and staying out of there. You know, it might be better, uh, better served using it for a, a different purpose. So well, that's good. Good advice. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a big fan of getting out right after season. And I, I hunt a lot of public land, but there's even even hunting public land. There's areas that I guess I kind of treat as uh, as sanctuaries, you know, those those bedding areas stick cover areas on some of these these tracks of public land doesn't mean that everybody else is going to treat them like a sanctuary but, right <laughs> but you know I, I try to do my part and but yeah right after season is is my favorite time to you know get in there and finally get a look in there and, and see if the activity was was what i thought it was if they were using it as i, I thought they were and that kind of stuff so and yeah we don't have unfortunately or well i won't say unfortunately i'm, I'm kind of glad we don't have a lot of snow down here in the south so <laughs> you can't get in there after a snow necessarily but um what you mentioned there about the droppings, you know, if you get in there and, and there's just droppings, you know, everywhere you look, that that's a pretty good indication that deer are spending a lot of time in there. So that would certainly, yeah, and, certainly be something I'd look for. And like I was talking about with giving it, giving it a couple of years, it, it might've been like this year, especially where my farm's at in Southern Kentucky, the, the, the acorn drop was something I'd never seen before. It, it was amazing. And I mean, our sanctuaries didn't get a ton of use and especially with those red oaks dropping, they were still hitting those red oaks well, well into late winter. Um, so 
or if the neighbors are, or the crop rotation might be different one year. There, there's factors that'll lead to a deer one season changing their movements completely. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So if it's just one odd year where you're not seeing the the usage that you think of, yeah, you can go in there and do a couple improvements. But if if it becomes a pattern, I think that's the point where you reevaluate whether or not that's working for you right there. Yeah. One one thing I, I meant to ask you earlier, and I skip right by it, but we were talking about you know the the size of a sanctuary. Do you ever, I guess, on, on larger properties, do you ever recommend like multiple? sanctuary areas or do you kind of just stick with one one location on a property for that no absolutely you can have multiple areas um especially on on those larger properties there's there's it just makes so much sense if you have like like a property i was on the other day it was kind of shaped like a music note where you have like a a big east west running chunk up top and then it kind of neck down going south and then you kind of had a big block down below it um I recommended doing two areas, an area up north where you have a big chunk of land and then there's a little bottleneck and an area down south where you got a big chunk of land down there. Um, you want to do it where where it's going to benefit you as a hunter um, the most. So if you have a big track of land, you can afford to have multiple sanctuaries out there. Um, you're not kind of, you don't have the the handicap of being so tight on space where, where every single square inch of your property has to be devoted to something. I I talk often with my clients about areas. I I call it like a buffer area where you don't want to go in there and do anything, you know, just leave that. You don't want every square inch of your property to be absolutely perfect because then you're, you don't, you can't access anywhere. You know, a deer is just as likely to be anywhere around those properties. So like areas surrounding your main access roads, um, within, within the immediate facility, kind of leave that little buffer there where you're not doing all the, all your TSI projects and getting everything right up to your main access points. Um, where you kind of have the freedom where you, you can access your stands without, without fear of jumping deer up. So if you, if you got the acreage, of, of course, I, I think you can, you can add multiple sanctuaries and maybe instead of having one 50 acre chunk of land set aside, maybe you, you set up two or three, 10, 15 acre chunks of land. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Well, as we, I guess, kind of wrap things up here, is there anything we haven't covered regarding, uh, creating and, and managing sanctuaries that that you think uh, is worth mentioning. Anything we missed? Um, one of the things that I ran into or I've run into in the past, especially in areas up north like uh, New York, comes to mind, and Minnesota, where you got a lot of swampy wetland areas. Um, those are are fantastic. They're difficult to hunt as is because the access is just so hard. But when you look at deer use, um, like up in Minnesota, this property I was on not long ago, I had just tons of blueberries in this, in this swampy area. And you could see when you're looking at the satellite images where those deer kind of, there's little islands out there, which you couldn't see from standing on the side of that swamp. But once you get out there and start walking it, there's some, some little like micro high points where you can see, they almost look like cattle tracks working through, working through from the aerial images where these deer are just traveling from one high point to the next high point. Um, there's no, absolutely nothing wrong with beaming that a sanctuary and just staying out of it. I mean, you, our wetlands are sensitive as is. You can't really go in there. You don't really want to drain them. Um, but just kind of work, changing your access routes where if a deer's batted out on that high spot, he's not going to be able to see you walk into your tree stand. Um, there's some, it's easy to overthink what you're doing as far as the sanctuary goes. So if, if I guess my point is if, if there's some areas out there that, that are already pretty well set up, but, but the biggest hindrance is, is going to be access for you as the hunter, then, then absolutely go ahead and just deem, deem that your sanctuary. And always, like I said, continue to monitor it and see if there's anything you can do to improve it. But there's a, uh, don't overthink it, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, and I think we all, as as deer hunters and land managers, have a tendency to do that. Whether whether it's deer sanctuaries or food plots or you know whatever, we we uh, sometimes we tend to overcomplicate things that that don't have to be that complicated. But yeah, uh, the other day I was, our I was asked, I was on a property and it was like, yeah, there's this buck and he's bedded down right on this uh, north facing hillside. It was back in February. I was like every time I drive this road, he's he's bedded on that north facing hillside and. 
why? Why is he doing that? And I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm thinking I wanted to come up with something really, <laughs> really <laughs> brilliant to tell him as to why this deer likes bed in that one spot. And then I'm like, you just got to remember his brain's the size of a walnut. It's a deer. Sometimes they just do weird things, you know. <laughs> yeah. We can't always make sense of exactly why a deer's doing what it's doing. We can we can try our best, but you, it'll keep you up at night sometimes trying to trying to figure out what that deer's calculating as far as his movements go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's funny. You said that. I'm actually working on on a article on kind of along those same lines about how we we want to put all deer into these boxes, you know, all deer do this and all deer do that, or all mature bucks do this. And sometimes we forget that these are individuals, you know, just like, yeah. just like we are, you know, they have the preferences uh-huh. and, uh, they, they, you know, you can't, they don't always do the same thing or, or play by the script. So, um, you know, they, they have preferences just like anything else. And some of them will do one thing, uh, some, you know, some deer homebody, some deer like to roam and, uh, you, you just can't, can't fit them all in one box like that. So, yeah, you run into yeah. it a lot during the rut as far as like their, uh, response to grunting or rattling. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and it's easy to see when, when you're looking at a deer and you're on the same chunk of ground year after year, there's, there's some deer on my property where I would not dream after the, when you see a two-year-old deer and you, you grunt at him and he turns and tucks tail or, and then he's three-year-old and he does the same thing. I mean, you catch on that deer. Okay. He does not like conflict. You know, I've never seen a point busted off of any of his antlers. <laughs> he's always, in per, uh, his sheds are always perfect when I find him. He's probably not much of a fighter. So kind of keeping track of that as you're going along. And if you're targeting that animal, you got to keep that kind of stuff in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good deal, Zach. Man, I've been, I've enjoyed uh, the talk and appreciate you taking time out today to uh, to talk to us about you know deer habitat and sanctuaries and online dating, the whole gamut. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, it was it was fun. And and if I might just add one last thing, as far as the uh, sanctuaries go, it's like I said, my my whole reason for writing that article and my whole approach as to a wildlife sanctuary again is just I just want to reiterate here, you should be actively managing those chunks of ground. It's not so much just slapping a sign on a tree and and walking away for good. I, I think you need to provide something there that's that's going to be beneficial for your deer other than the lack of human intrusion. So just keeping that in mind and working it in, you might have a perfectly good sanctuary already designated on your property. Um, perfectly good in the sense that you're using it, that the, the deer are using it, but that doesn't mean you can't get in there and make it better. So just kind of getting over that fear of buggering everything up. Those, those deer are going to come right back. You know, like I said, stay out a month if you're, if you're really worried about it two months before season, but that still leaves you five, six months out of the year. You can be in there and in making your property better. So I just, uh, I want to encourage landowners that if, if you want to, make your property as as hunt friendly and as deer friendly as possible you, you should be trying to trying to do the best thing you can for your deer herd and oftentimes that's managing those sanctuaries yeah absolutely and for anybody that that wants to read that article it, it's on our website as well and it's titled you're managing deer sanctuaries all wrong so you can you can hit that search feature on our homepage and uh Search that and shouldn't have any problem finding it. And uh, for for the listeners who you know would like to keep up with you and what you're doing online, what's the or maybe want to get in contact with you about a, a property consult consultation, uh, wh- what's the best way for them to do that? So the best way would be to uh, go to my website. It's whetstonehabitat.com. That's whetstone w h e t s t o n e habitat.com um, or um, I'm active on Instagram. It's at Whetstone Habitat. Again, Whetstone with an H. Uh, or you can shoot me an email. Uh, come directly to me, Zach, at what's Z-A-C-K at WhetstoneHabitat.com. Good deal. Again, I appreciate it, Zach, and uh, enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you, Brian. I really did. I appreciate you having me on. All right, guys. That wraps up our interview with Zach Vakirovich. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, 
uh, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to deerassociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Hey, you can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website, covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.